Welcome to the dinner party. This is your icebreaker. So here's the joke. There's a guy sitting next to a janitor on a bus. And he says, how do you like being a janitor? It's terrible. I work at Paramount Studios. The bathroom's always broken. There's garbage all over the place. It's ruining my marriage. The guy says, well, why don't you leave? He says, what? You quit show business? I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano, and from APM American Public Media, this is The Dinner Party, the culture show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. You just got a joke from Adam Spiegelman, host of the cult movie show Proudly Resents. Yes. That'll help break the ice. Later, you'll learn things you didn't know from actor and comedian Patton Oswalt. He's in the new film, Young Adults. Which is not for young adults. Not at all. It's rated R for restricted, in yeah. fact. Sorry, kids. Also on our show this week, essayist Sloane Crosley, Catherine Calder of the band New Pornographers, and author Jay Kirk. But first, as at any dinner party, we start with small talk. All week long, you might have been hearing these cultural headlines. Howard Stern is the new judge on America's Got Talent. Writer and order Christopher Hitchens has died after battling cancer. The silent film The Artist earned six Golden Globe nominations. Now for something you haven't heard, we turn to Jake Silverstein. He is the editor of Texas Monthly. Jake, thanks for joining us. It's very good to be here. Uh, What story are you going to be talking about this weekend? Well, this weekend there's going to be a big rally at the uh, Henderson County Courthouse in Athens, Texas, because a group of atheists up in Wisconsin has sent a letter to Henderson County down here in Texas objecting to their nativity scene on the county courthouse lawn. Really? This story again? Right. Doesn't every year some local government puts a crash on the county courthouse steps or something? Right. Well, that's it. It's the war on, it's not the Christmas season, it's the war on Christmas season. (laughs) (laughs) Merry war on Christmas, guys. I can't believe Wisconsin is bold enough to do this. I guess it's the fact that there's Iowa, Missouri, and Arkansas between them and Texas that makes them feel confident. Well, that's the funny thing to me about the story. It's like these cheeseheads don't know really what the fight that they've got on their hands here. (laughs) One of the county commissioners said, I'm an old country boy. You come to my house looking for a fight, you're going to get one. We'll, re- we'll remove all that when hell freezes over. Again and with the religion right there. So this, but, exactly. But what's new about this story? I mean, like, this is basically the same fight that we see every year, right? Well, the folks in Henderson County have come up with what they call the gnome defense. Gnome. You're going to be hearing that a lot, I think, in future wars on Christmas. Interesting, like Gnome no- Chomsky? Because it's-, <laughs> <laughs> it's odd that If he- you add a gnome... Uh-huh. If you if you add a gnome to your nativity display, it secularizes it. It waters it down. Wait, like a garden gnome? Like a garden gnome. Yeah, they have garden <laughs> gnomes. They have some reindeer. They have the you know non-religious symbols. But they're really focusing on the gnome. I see. So it dilutes the Christianity because there's non-Christmas kind of uh, festive things up there, as well as Jesus. That's exactly right. So it's the gnome defense. I don't know. This could that defense could be a slippery slope. Now you're going to have to have crash scenes with like Spider-Man's, <laughs> Green Goblins. That's right. It's going right. to get crazier and crazier. Maybe this is right. a good thing. I Kardashians actually... will have to start going around and just appearing in live nativities just to make them acceptable. <laughs> well, they're kind of religious. I kind of see a new card decal. I see the fish with a gnome next to it. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> it's like not having a fish at all. Jake Silverstein, thanks very much for the small talk. Thanks, guys. And now, time for cocktails. Once again, we tell you something that happened this week in history, then give you a fitting drink to serve along with it. It's our famed history lesson with booze. First, the history part, though. This week back in 1968, one of the most infamous crimes in Japanese history occurred. We doubt the folks at your dinner party will have heard of it. Here's Michelle Philippi with the tale. Picture this. You're an employee at one of Japan's largest banks, and you and some co-workers are given a simple task. 
deliver 300 million yen to one of the bank's clients. You're driving over with the money in a company car when a motorcycle cop pulls you over. The cop tells you that your boss, the bank manager, just had his house blown up and that whoever did it may have planted dynamite inside the car you're sitting in. You'd get out of the car, right? And when smoke started billowing from it, you'd run, right? Well, that's what happened on December 10th, 1968. Except the cop was actually a robber in disguise. He had created the smoke with a flare, and then he hopped in the car and drove off with 300 million yen. What followed was the largest manhunt in Japanese history. 170,000 cops amassed a list of over 100,000 suspects. Even the country's most famous detective got involved. He'd solved an infamous kidnapping the year before. Could he solve the heist of the century? Answer? Nope. No one was ever convicted of the robbery. And even though the statute of limitations passed in 1975, the perpetrator has never confessed. So that was the history. Now for the drink to serve with it. I am at the Far Bar in the Little Tokyo section of Los Angeles. I am speaking with uh, bartender John Francis. John, you heard the history. What drink does that inspire you to make? I'm going to be making, it's called a fuzzy screw bomb. A fuzzy screw bomb. Yeah, to take off the original sake bomb. Of course, the sake bomb because this heist took place in Japan. Yeah, the cop planted a smoke bomb underneath, so the car started smoking. They all ran away. Ours is a takeoff of it because it's not an original sake bomb. It's like a false sake bomb. It's a fraud, just like the original bomb. It's a fake. Yeah, basically. Still the same effects, but... Yes. <laughs> All right, so why don't you uh, tell me how this thing is made? All right, basically what I'm going to do is I'm going to take a pint glass. I'm going to fill it halfway up with beer. Uh, we're using Sapporo because it's a light beer. Um, and it's Japanese. And it's Japanese, yes. I'm going to take that. Take my shot glass. And I'm going to fill it up with equal parts soju and peach snaps. Now, so- soju, is that really Japanese? It's more Korean, isn't it? This is a Japanese soju. I think Korean is called shochu, actually. Anyway, it's the right part of the world. Yes. Then I'm going to take my two chopsticks. I'm going to lay them right over the pint glass. Oh, wow. There's like props involved with this. Yes. You've sort of laid the two chopsticks about half an inch apart, but parallel to each other across the opening of the pint glass. And then what I'm going to do is I'm just going to lay that shot glass right on top of it. So now the shot glass is sort of hovering over the beer. And basically what we're going to do is we're going to pound the table till it falls in. Forewarned, this drink can get a little messy. (laughs) It definitely gets everywhere. I can imagine people running away if they didn't know it was coming there. Uh, So I'm going to take a sip of this thing, if you don't mind. Oh, man. It's surprisingly refreshing. Yeah, it's uh, a little sweet, but you still get that, like, beer taste in it, and um, it's really good. It's meant to be drank as, like, a shooter, like, you just, like, pound it all one time. It's, uh, I should note that it's 10 a.m. as I'm sampling this. If I, if I were to pound this, I would probably, you know, blow up my day. Rico, interesting history as always. Yes. But did it sound to you a little bit like Michelle Philippi was gloating? 
Yeah, that she like she knew a little too much about the heist. Yeah, exactly. Like she might have some inside information. You know, she is the only public radio employee I have ever met who has a Louis Vuitton tote bag. That's right, and the diamond encrusted commuter mug. Clues. Look, you go keep her busy right. while I remind our audience that they can find all of our cocktail recipes at dinnerpartydownload.org. And now, the guest list, in which an interesting person lists some interesting things. And today, the interesting person is Essay of Sloane Crosley. Her writing has appeared in the New York Times and GQ. Her best-selling collection of essays, I Was Told There'd Be Cake, is being made into an HBO series. This week, she lists her favorite art about travel. But first, she tells us why. Hello, my name is Sloane Crosley, and I just released... An essay out into the world via Amazon and their Kindle single program. And it's called Up the Down Volcano. And it's about me taking a misguided and poorly informed trip up a active volcano in South America. Here's a list of things that are pop culture-esque things that were burned in my brain about travel. Um, and not really travel so much as adventure. The first one, book-wise, has to be Edgar Dreams. A lot of people, uh, if they know of John Krakauer, which I assume they do, they know of Into Thin Air or Into the Wild. He has sold many, many books. But Edgar Dreams, which is a collection of all of his sort of serious hardcore mountain climbing uh, essays, is really his secretly, I think, most extreme adventure story. He talks about climbing the Devil's Thumb in Alaska. He was thoroughly unprepared, and so it's a lot about the sort of hubris of, of youth and, and man versus nature. This is what I remember from that book, is the only thing he had with him when he was sort of trapped on this mountain alone and had just set fire to his tent was uh, Joan Didion's The Book of Common Prayer, which is the worst depressing, lonely book. I can't think of anything worse. <laughs> Aside from the frostbite in the eye, you know, that's not good either. The second thing, a movie that's really stuck in my brain about travel um, is Lost in Translation, which is a little less death-defying than Edgar Dreams, unless you count Tokyo hostess clubs and karaoke as being, you know, at risk to your health. Maybe, I don't know how they clean them. And the scenes that really stick with me when I think about traveling, especially if you're in a hotel room or you're, you're alone somehow, there's two scenes in that that are sort of the less lauded scenes, not including Scarlett Johansson in semi-sheer underwear. But one of them is when she calls a friend of hers back home and the friend says, oh my God, you know, what time is it there? And they exchange some pleasantries. And this is clearly actually a decent friend of hers, but she's trying to express how alone she is. And the friend's just not getting it. And, you know, she's just looking around her hotel room and looking around her life and thinking, I don't even have the words to describe to you what's going on right now. Hello? Lauren? Charlotte, hey. Hey. Oh my God, how's Tokyo? It's great here. It's really great. Um, I don't know, I went to this shrine today mm -hmm. and um, there were these monks and they were chanting and I didn't feel anything, you know? Wait a second, just hold on, I'll be right back. Okay, sure. <laughs> and that's a common feeling in travel. It doesn't even have to be that melancholy, sometimes it can be amazing. That's as difficult to articulate as something that's actually really not going out, turning out that well. Here's another thing. Land Down Under by Men at Work. 
I'm sure you know it. If you haven't heard it already once today, I'm pretty sure you're lying to me, actually. <laughs> that is the strangest song. Do you ever have songs where you're like, wow, if they only slowed them down and, and erased the sort of poppy beat, you'd realize how truly upsetting it is? I mean, the first line of that song is, I think it's the first line, is, I met a strange lady. She made me nervous. She took me in and made me breakfast. She took me in and gave me breakfast. And she said, you come from a land down under. What? It's like the kidnapping theme song. Women go and men wonder. Can't you hear, can't you hear the thunder? You better run, you better take cover. I just remember the video so clearly because... The video looks like it takes place in Africa. There's just a lot of sand and a lot of running, and it takes place everywhere. There's, like, Belgian references. It's groundbreaking in terms of videos about travel. It's sort of epic travel journey, and nothing strikes me as so epic, just in its randomness, as Land Down Under. I said, do you speak my language? The guest list from Sloane Crosley, she just published a new essay through Amazon's Kindle Singles program, it's called Up the Down Volcano. Enrico, one more thing. We received a text from Sloan right before broadcast. Yes. And it said, quote, thanks for having me on. FYI, the name of the Krakauer book is Iger Dreams. Ah. So thanks for the correction, Sloan. And in her defense, she had just returned from traveling and was fighting jet lag. Apropos. Perfect. All right, we're going to take a break. When we return, we learn the secrets of regifting. Number four is it should be in its original packaging. Or just shrink wrap the fruitcake yourself and fake it. All that and more when the dinner party returns. Welcome back to The Dinner Party, the culture show that keeps you on top of the cultural conversation. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan, standing at the peak of the cultural Kilimanjaro. The view is amazing. <laughs> Coming up, up I can see author Jay Kirk, who will tell us about an elephant that nearly started a second revolutionary war. Mm. And later, Rico learns how electricity made us eat waffles. And it's not because it became possible to toast egos. Mm. But first, you can't enjoy a dinner party if you have lousy manners, so it's time for our weekly etiquette lesson. And returning to the show to answer listeners' questions are Lizzie Post and Daniel Post-Senning of the Emily Post Institute. They are the great-grandchildren of Emily Post, and they just released the 18th edition of Emily Post's etiquette. And I heard that you had your holiday party right before you came here. Is that true? We did. Coming straight from the uh, Emily Post Institute holiday gathering. Now, was that the politest gathering on the planet? <laughs> Like, was everyone just pinkies out? <laughs> Dare we tell them the things we talked about? <laughs> it was a ruthless Yankee swap, it was. is really what Whoa. it was. First of all, what's a Yankee swap? Okay, so Yankee swap, it's like a gift swap, but with a pecking order. Everyone brings a gift, something really simple. So it's not a Sammy Hagar album, it's like a gift-giving thing. <laughs> a Sammy Hagar album would be actually exactly appropriate. Yeah. I think I walked away with the National Lampoon's holiday movie. <laughs> you all swap the gifts, you, you go in order. If you get a later pick, you can steal a gift from someone earlier. Yeah. Interesting. So a lot of opportunities to actually act very impolitely to one another. Oh, yeah. All right. Well, <laughs> nonetheless, we have brought you here to answer some of our listener questions. And, and here is the first one. This is from an anonymous writer in Shadyside, Pennsylvania. This person writes, what is the polite action in this scenario? Visiting a former boyfriend's out-of-town parents, I was washing dishes after <laughs> Christmas dinner and the sink clogged. His mother went into the bathroom next to the kitchen and grabbed the toilet plunger to unclog the sink. 
I really didn't want to put my hands back in the sink and had doubts about if continuing to wash the dishes post-plunge would actually make them cleaner, but I really had no choice but to act like that was normal and keep washing. So now you see why this is anonymous. Yeah, I like that the first part of this question is that you're going to your ex-boyfriend's out-of-town parents' home. And then that's not what we're worried about. It's about plunging the sink with a toilet plunger. That's a good point. That's true. Maybe they're good cooks. No, but this actually isn't that uncommon. We, we get a, a different version of this question sometimes at the Institute that goes something like this. I was over at someone's house for, for dinner, and I noticed the cat up on the counter. Uh, yeah, or, right. or something that just felt really unclean to me. Mm-hmm. A situation like you just described, I might... Ask a leading question. Um, oh, where do you keep the bleach? I'll be ready to, to hit that sink as soon as you're done so we can get on with the rest of our dishes. If you can't squeeze something like that and sometimes you just have to grin and bear it. We, we can't impose our standards on, on everyone yeah. we meet. And I, I always remind people, you don't know what goes on in the kitchen at your favorite restaurant. In California, we have letter grades we put on the windows of our restaurants, A, B, and C. Maybe we should have those for private homes. Do you guys ever go to an F? No. No? No, a C is bad enough. And yeah. I've, I've t- Taken oh, okay. that jump maybe once and regretted it thereafter. <laughs> they, I mean, it is a little. It's a little difficult. It's like we had yeah. Gail Simmons of Top Chef on our show a while back, and she said the one time that you are allowed to spit out a, a piece of food in front of somebody is if your life you think might be in danger because it's undercooked or something. <laughs> is this not a similar sort of thing? Gail, we will add that to the book. <laughs> Sa- safety always trumps etiquette. But I do. I like Dan's idea of you know like make a play to try to offer to sanitize before we begin cleaning the dishes. I like Dan's idea yeah. because it's passive-aggressive, which is something I'm learning in these etiquette segments. I like Dan's idea because it was originally my idea. (laughs) Whoever had the idea, I just like the idea of like, so where's the bleach? You stare at them. I just picture Dan staring at them, holding the plunger, shaking his head no. (laughs) All right. We have another question. This is from Catherine in Bristow, Virginia. What do you do if someone cuts you in line at Walmart? And I think this means cuts in front of you. I don't think, because I know there's been a lot of <laughs> cutting, actually, for real happening. I know. The, the first answer is whatever you do, do it carefully. <laughs> yeah. No, the, the easiest one is actually a title of one of our books. Tap them on the shoulder or get their attention to, excuse me, but I was next. Magic <laughs> words. Excuse me, pardon me. It's just, this is holiday shopping season. People are being really no, rude. They may is. not respond to that. Yeah. They and might the, not respond. And really, the best thing that you can do is take a deep breath, choose to let it go. But at the same time, I think that it's perfectly fine for you to be the polite one and step up and say, hey, wait a minute, there's other people around here, bud. But then what if they threaten to cut you? What is the polite thing to do in that scenario? That's when you get the store manager involved. And what if it's the store manager? (laughs) Well, if he threatens to cut you, man, you got to shop somewhere else. Okay. Okay. Here's our third question. This is Sylvia via the town of Facebook. Oh, yeah. Um, I want to visit there. It seems like just great people are there. So many friends of mine live there. Very polite area. If you are given a gift of horrible holiday apparel... How many times are you required to wear it? Says Rico wearing a gingerbread onesie. <laughs> that is untrue. That was one time a couple of days ago. How many times are you required to wear it? I like to model something for the for the giver at least once, but uh, much much beyond it. that is uh, really up to you. Yeah, let's <laughs> face it. Not every gift is a gift that you're going to necessarily wear or put on your coffee table. And um, that's kind of a risk that we take when we decide to give someone a gift. And I think that our egos need to be checked a little bit and understand that, you know, sometimes we miss the mark. That's what returns are for. You're, you're getting to the most essential holiday questions. What do I do with gifts I don't? like yeah. and is regifting okay mm. dun, dun, dun. <laughs> while we're on it yeah is it okay to regift yes and there are four ways that you should take into account when you do it number one the person 
that you're giving it to should actually be someone you think would like this gift. Mm-hmm. Number two, it cannot be anything incredibly original, homemade, or personalized. <laughs> Sorry about that what? Brendan handkerchief I gave you. <laughs> <laughs> it should not. It, you have to be like 99.9% sure the person who gave you the gift, as well as the person receiving it from you, won't find out that it's regifted. Oh. Or be offended if right. they were to find out. Yeah, that's true, too. <laughs> okay. Number four is it should be in its original packaging. And then the one way where it's 100% totally okay to re-gift is when you receive two Emily Post Etiquette 18th edition (laughs) books and you decide to give the other one to your friend. Again, I kind of etiquette really that it's about being passive-aggressive. It's about being duplicitous. Yep. And not getting caught. That's what I'm learning. We say finding the benevolent truth. Final question. And this seems kind of apropos for this season where everybody's sort of getting colds. This comes from Jennifer in Groningen, the Netherlands. If you invite someone to a dinner party and you find out shortly before they're supposed to arrive that they have a cold, is it acceptable to ask them not to come for the sake of you and all the other guests' health? (laughs) The disinvite. It's almost impossible. (laughs) Almost impossible to uninvite somebody. Uh, You can always let them know (laughs) that they'd be that if they're not feeling well. (laughs) <laughs> they're not obligated to attend, that it won't just won't ruin your plans, but probably not appropriate to ask them not to come. So if so, if I go to someone's house and I see them doing something unhealthy, like plunging their sink with a toilet plunger, I can't do anything about it. And if I invite them to my house, I can't prevent them from bringing something unhealthy into my home. If they shouldn't be at your dinner party, they're going to know it. They're not going to come. You have to assume a baseline of intelligence and honesty from the people you deal with. You do have to operate from that original perspective. Okay, kind words from kind people. Lizzie Post and Daniel Post-Senig, thanks so much for coming by and telling us and our listeners how to behave. And thank you, gentlemen, for for having us. We love it. eavesdrop. Jay Kirk's articles have been published in the New York Times Magazine and Harper's. His debut nonfiction book, Kingdom Under Glass, just came out in paperback. This week, we overhear him reading a dinner party-worthy excerpt. Hi, I'm Jay Kirk and the author of Kingdom Under Glass, which is the story of Carl Akeley, who was the taxidermist who created the famous dioramas at the Hall of African Mammals at the American Museum of Natural History. Akeley's first claim to fame was stuffing and mounting Jumbo the Elephant, P.T. Barnum's famous elephant. And this is sort of a digression in the book. It's the story of what happened when Barnum first bought Jumbo from the British. Barnum had sent several of his agents to the London Zoo, where a massive padded oak crate, reinforced with iron, was quickly constructed and a departure date set for the cross-Atlantic trip. But after a week, they had still not managed to persuade Jumbo to enter the box. News of Jumbo's imminent departure and stories of how he was being tricked into the crate with figs and buns appeared in the London Times almost daily. After a first, and then second, rendezvous with a steamship to New York past, without the elephant being persuaded to get in his box, Jumbo grew into a jingoistic cause celeb. In thousands of letters, children begged Barnum to set aside his cruel heart and please not take away their Jumbo. 
Petitions were signed, prayer vigils held. Citizens demanded that Jumbo not leave British soil. The English were concerned that the circus lifestyle would be too stressful for poor Jumbo, that the American diet would prove deleterious. Living in America would damage Jumbo's self-respect and put a Yankee twang in his trumpeting. The House of Commons debated whether America was deliberately swindling them out of their greatest living monument. Queen Victoria herself grieved over the issue, as if P.T. Barnum were Rumpelstiltskin come to collect the castle's firstborn. Zoo officials complicit in the struggle to lure the stubborn elephant into his giant packing crate received death threats. British intellectuals took umbrage. John Ruskin wrote that the decision of the Zoological Society to rid itself of Jumbo was disgraceful to the city of London and dishonorable to humanity. James Russell Lowell, the poet and American ambassador, said, quote, the only burning question between England and America is Jumbo. The case finally ended up a chancery court, but the judge ruled there were no grounds for an injunction against the zoo for selling the beast. Jumbo's fate is sealed, the Daily Telegraph wrote. We fear, however, that Jumbo will never come back to us alive. His mighty heart will probably break with rage, shame, and grief, and we may hear of him like another Samson, playing the mischief with the Philistines who have led him into captivity and dying amid some scene of terrible wrath and ruin. We hope Mr. Barnum fully realizes what ten and a half tons of solid fury can do when it has a mind. But still, during this whole fiasco, Jumbo wouldn't move. The longer Jumbo declined to walk into the crate, the more public outrage mounted, the more the zoological society schismed, and the greater anticipation grew in America to see the great mastodon. Barnum's agents telegraphed the boss, Jumbo is lying in garden and will not stir. What shall we do? Let him lie there a week if he wants to, Barnum wired back. It is the best advertisement in the world. Author Jay Kirk reading from his book Kingdom Under Glass. It came out this month in paperback, and you're listening to The Dinner Party from American Public Media. So we've learned good manners, eavesdropped on an author. Now it's time for the main course, where we learn about the best part of a dinner party, the food. Yes, and Brendan, New Year's is coming, Uh and you know what that means. Uh, Anticlimactic party followed by mild hangover. (laughs) Yes. Okay. Uh, And it also means food predictions for next year. Oh, yeah. I love them. Yes. The trend forecasters, Andrew Freeman and company, just released their list of what they think will be on our plates next year. And one trend they're forecasting is that we'll be eating more breakfast foods for lunch. Okay. Interesting. So that's been coming on for a while because waffle sandwiches have been popular. Sure, exactly. But it got me thinking, why do we classify some foods as breakfast foods in the first place? So I got in touch with food historian Linda Civitello, and I met her for breakfast at an appropriate L.A. restaurant. Welcome to Roscoe's Chicken and Waffles. How can I take your order? I will take a waffle with a chicken breast. I would love chicken and gravy and biscuits, thigh meat only, please. No problem. All right. So since 1976, this place has been serving chicken and waffles, which is common in some parts of the country, but which in many parts of the country would never be served on the same plate because you're supposed to eat them at different times a day. Why is that? Why do we even bother delineating what food should be served when? Everything we eat, when we eat it, 
is completely culturally constructed. And as a matter of fact, having chicken for breakfast is much more 19th century and in the American tradition than having the waffle for breakfast is. The waffle is a latecomer. About 100 years ago, breakfast became more carbohydrate, sugar, with minimal protein. So uh, what culturally shifted that made us throw chicken into the lunch and dinner category? Electricity showed up. Yes, I see this extremely puzzled look on your face. What the heck does electricity have to do with breakfast? Well, think about it. Before electricity, you got up in the morning, you ate a big meal. You ate meat, you ate potatoes or hash, and then you went out to work in the fields. We were an agrarian culture. You came in at midday, you'd been working hard all morning. You ate another big meal. When the sun went down, your day was over, you came inside, and keeping things lit was expensive with whale oil or kerosene or something, so you went to bed after it got dark. Your last meal of the day was very minimal. You'd have applesauce or prunes or a little bit of something, so you wouldn't wake up hungry in the middle of the night, but it's the opposite of the way we eat now. At night, we eat an enormous meal, and then we lie down, and that's why everybody in America is heartburn. <laughs> well, I didn't know that I was gonna get the history of heartburn on top of this. Well, when electricity showed up, wham, New York is lit up. Restaurants show up. You stay out late. You still have to be at work in the morning, though, but now America's become urban. You have got a, a job, maybe in an office, or but you still have to be at work in the morning, and where's that time going to come out of? It's not going to come out of your fun time at night. 86 to breakfast. So you stay out later, you get up in the morning later, and breakfast has to get smaller and faster. And if you're living in an apartment with not even a full kitchen, maybe, all you need are some flakes, the new cereals that have been created by industry. And then in the 1950s, coffee break came along so that if you miss breakfast you know you're getting by law 15 minutes to go and grab something so so basically one of the reasons we shift to carbs is because they're faster it's it's faster to cook carbs than it is to cook you know a chicken yes so now we've supposedly got this um trend where we're eating breakfast foods later is that just for the novelty of it or is something culturally happening right now where that's preferable breakfast food is comfort food the idea of a cozy breakfast at home. Ooh, here comes ours. A, thighs only, your biscuit, and your 13. That's my waffle and a big fried chicken breast. Enjoy. I sure will. So breakfast food is comfort food. It's chemically comforting to have fats and carbs and, and sweet things. And it's usually an intimate meal. You don't have to get dressed up for breakfast. So it makes you feel comforted. And it's also, breakfast is a new beginning. You know, you've had a bad day. Go have breakfast at 4 o'clock in the afternoon. You can feel like you can start all over again. It's a great psychological thing. And in a down economy, it might make sense to yearn for that. And for businesses, it's a cash cow. Breakfast is for restaurants now in this economy what popcorn was for movie theaters in the 1930s. Something very cheap that you can sell for a lot of money. Yes. Um, it also occurs to me, though, that other cultures, you know, for instance, in the Netherlands, they eat pancakes for lunch. Why did they develop differently than we did? No, no, no. Why did we develop differently from the way they did? The Netherlands was there first. Pancakes, crepes were invented earlier. As a matter of fact... Thomas Jefferson had a waffle when he was in France and fell so in love with it, he said, I have to have a waffle iron and brought one back to the United States. 
Uh, crepe is not necessarily a breakfast food in France. We've made it a breakfast food. We've added sweet things to it, strawberries, bananas. And I'm sure they look down their noses at us for that. I had a interesting experience when I was in France a few years ago where I ordered orange juice, coffee, an omelet, ham, and a croissant. And the waitress was incredulous, and she kept standing there and going, mais vous êtes toute seule in French, you know, but you're, you're all alone. You know, vous êtes une personne, you're only one person. And she was standing there in the middle of the restaurant yelling at me. You were ordering too much for one person. Yeah, you know, they expected like a little continental breakfast. You know, it was appalling to them. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean they're right. All right, thanks very much for talking to me, and now I'm going to thumb my nose at convention and eat a bite of waffle with a bite of fried chicken on top of it. Take that, society. Food historian Linda Civitello, she's the author of the book Cuisine and Culture, A History of Food and People. All right, we're going to take a little break. Coming up, actor, author, and comedian Patton Oswalt takes on public radio. Come on, Terry Gross, let's kick some butt here. Oh, my God. All that and more when the dinner party returns. Welcome back to The Dinner Party, the show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. In a few minutes, Catherine Calder of the indie rock supergroup New Pornographers will be here with suggestions for music to play at your next get-together. And Brendan speaks with comic and actor Patton Oswalt. It's true. That's what's going to happen later this hour. To find out what's going to happen later this week, producer Megan McCarty is here with your weekly alibi. Why do you need an alibi? So at your next dinner party, if anyone asks you... Where were you about 7.30 last Why, I... Where were you? Instead of saying... Um, I was at home perfecting my recipe for hard-boiled eggs? You can say something interesting, like... I was watching elves battle Martians at Santa's cool holiday film festival. You can see this collection of vintage holiday films at one of 200 theaters from Anchorage, Alaska to Omaha, Nebraska. It's a cinematic stocking stuffed with retro kitsch classics like the 1964 film Santa Claus Conquers the Martians. Those are Martians. Santa Claus, you're coming with us. No, you can't take him now. It's too near Christmas. Quiet, you. If Christmas isn't commercial enough, you could say you were toasting TV ads at the Boston Institute of Contemporary Art. This Sunday, the 18th, you can be brainwashed artistically by the finest American commercials. It's part of a series presented in Boston through the end of December. From the pint-sized Volkswagen Vader... to the oh-so-manly Old Spice Man. Hello, ladies. How are you? Fantastic. These spots set a new benchmark for creative advertising and, of course, pectoral definition. Swan dive into the best night of your life. Or for your final alibi, you could say you were spinning out of control at the Major League Dreidel match. 
That's right, Major League Dreidel, a modern and more competitive spin on the traditional holiday pastime. The topsy-turvy tournament will be held at the Knitting Factory in Brooklyn this Saturday the 17th. The so-called conditioner Eric Pavoni told me about the special arena they built for the event. We needed a place to play competitive professional dreidel, a stadium, so we built the spinagogue, which is where all the spinning, winning, all the guilt and the glory takes place. A Hanukkah metal band will help the dreidel dogs get pumped. On the first night of Hanukkah, I received a mighty dreidel. Spinning Winning will be beginning at 9.30. That's your weekend alibi, because it's a crime to waste a weekend. Our guest of honor this week is comedian and actor Patton Oswalt. He's in a new film called Young Adult, which was made by the people who wrote and directed Juno. It stars Charlize Theron. He also has a new comedy album out called Finest Hour... And Patton, I have to say it's really difficult preparing to interview you because you've done so much stuff and so much of it is really funny that I just found myself watching YouTube and laughing, forgetting oh, wow. that I had I'm to flat flattering. <laughs> Thank you. questions and stuff for you. You know, this year alone you have a book out, a comedy album, a new film. Where do you get your work ethic? Uh, probably from just terror. <laughs> um, <laughs> when I started off as a stand-up back in D.C., I saw a lot of older guys that did not start with a work ethic and and were all about, I'm in this to do the minimum, and they were all miserable. Mm. There was that. But then beyond that, I mean, I actually really like doing this. There are some people, I guess, maybe they're in show business or some form of entertainment, and then they go, I have to have hobbies outside of this. But writing a book is a hobby for me. It doesn't really feel like work, and getting to do stand-up is a pressure release. So I've made my work the stuff that I actually am pleased to do. Fortunately, the same goes for me. And part of my job is asking a couple of standard questions. And the first one is, what question are you tired of being asked? Uh, oh, um, <laughs> Charlize, right? <laughs> I mean, dude, yeah, yeah. right? So, yeah, Charlize Theron is the star of Young Adult, your new movie, and she is a very attractive woman. Yes. Um, it, but I think it must be frustrating for her because she also happens to be an amazing actress. She is going to have an amazing body of work. Yeah. And then, and then it ends up getting frustrating for me. We're like, yes, I know she's gorgeous. Have you seen the work she's done in movies? It's kind of astounding, <laughs> you know. Are, yeah. are, if you're not into movies and just into hot women, you can go work at Maxim. <laughs> There's no reason to, you know. So go do the Pirelli calendar. Yeah. But, of course, there is a scene in the film where you guys share a bed. Mm -hmm. And it's it, it visually, it's it's... Jarring, yeah. or it's not something you see normally in a. No, in a it is film. not. No, it is that you get to see both extremes of the, the human form, which is nice. Um, in the film, she plays um, a young adult author mm -hmm. who kind of returns to her hometown, hell bent on kind of recreating her her high school life where she was the prom it, queen. It basically it's a movie that starts off like every romantic comedy you've ever seen. Mm. Girl from the big city goes back to her hometown, is going to win back the guy that got away, and. Oh boy, does it take some hard turns into disturbing, still funny, yeah. but it, it, it shows you, oh, this is what romantic comedy behavior looks like in real life. Really, really frightening. Yeah, dark and a little bit disturbing. And, oh, yeah. And very. you play someone who grew up in that town with her, shared the locker next to her. Yes. Was it was a geek? Well, I had the locker next to her, and as I find out 
much to my disappointment, she absolutely does not remember me after four years of, of seeing me every day sure, of her life. Because she was looking in the mirror too much. Yes, exactly. What? I'm sorry, but I, I, I think we went to high school together. At the same time? Yeah. I understand that high school is this experience that comes at a critical time in our social development as yep. individuals in America. But Charlize Theron's character struck me as kind of a metaphor for America and her obsession with high school. I'm wondering, did those years mean a lot to you personally? Of course. Yeah, they mean a lot to everyone. Of course they do. Really? They don't mean a lot to me. Uh, I bet they mean a lot uh, in deeper ways that you might not have thought about. Hmm. It's what Kurt Vonnegut said. It's the Central American experience. And there's just no getting away from it. Well, along with the culture of high school, this film also looks at the culture of middle-class America, just Mm -hmm. the box stores, the the fast food restaurants. Mm -hmm. And in your stand-up, you often joke about this same culture, our consumer culture. And I'm thinking in particular of your riff on fast food bowls, which seem to strike a chord with a lot of people. Do you have any idea on why it's so titillating to hear or see these kind of mundane parts of our culture uh, in film or as part of comedy bits? I don't know if it's titillating. I, it was just something that I saw a few years ago and I got genuinely angry at when I saw it on TV and just kind of, you know, went off. I mean, it it, it, has, it doesn't really have anything to do with food. It's just like, what are we valuing as consumers and as a part of our daily life? And if you, sometimes those values can reflect kind of badly on a culture. I'm so, I'm so hungry. What's good to eat here at the Kentucky Fried Chicken, man? Oh, we have these, um... Little like popcorn chicken things that are kind of breaded. I like those. And oh, duh, if you get the mashed potatoes, you gotta get the gravy. The gravy is so tangy, it's really good. Okay, stop right there. Um, can you pile all of those items into a uh, single bowl? Just kind of make them into a, a wet mound of starch that I can eat with a spoon like I'm a death row prisoner on suicide watch. Have that instead. Um, yes, we can do that. Um, we can also arrange those on a plate like you're an adult with dignity and self-respect. You don't have to actually eat your food out of a single bowl. All right, so we have another standard thing we ask our guests to do, and that is to tell us something we don't know. It could be about you, Pat Oswald, or it could be an interesting fact in the world that most people don't know. Uh... If you say the word beer can with your best British accent, you have just said bacon with a Jamaican accent. Should I try it? Say beer can with your right. best British accent. <clears throat> beer can. You just said bacon in with a Jamaican accent. <laughs> when did you discover this? Uh, I saw it on the internet. I'm kind of surprised that with your busy schedule that you even have time to browse the internet. Yeah, it's like it's like looking at the internet now is like staring at a fire at the end of the day, just sitting in front of your <laughs> fireplace and just relaxing, <laughs> resting your eyeballs against the screen. Wow, I still I still have some sort of guild around that, and so I feel like that that fire is burning my my soul and my potential as I watch George yeah. Harrison videos from the seventies. And... Yeah, but I mean, Socrates thought that writing would destroy all knowledge. That if we didn't memorize it in our heads, that writing would make us dumber. So every new medium, there's people that detract it and think, "Oh, it's going to make me dumber." If something like the internet can make you dumber, then you were you're dumb. You were probably <laughs> dumb, and we're going to be dumb anyway. Hey, I'm sure when people when they first invented fire, there were people that got dumber because they just stared at the fire all day. You know, it's always it has nothing to do with the medium itself. All right, that's fair. And we yeah. learned about bacon and, and, and you learned about and bacon. And, yeah. One last thing. Sure. You did a comedic bit on NPR. Uh-huh. You called it unlistenable radio. I'm yes. not. I'm not here to hold your feet to no, the that's, internet hey, I, fire. No, I still that. stand by that. All right. Well, here's what you said. <laughs> 
I send money to NPR, I support them, I support them philosophically, but it's unlistenable radio. You understand me? I send the money so I don't have to listen to them. When, when did conservatives steal rock and roll from us? When did that happen? All the AM stations, all their break music is this blast gut bucket rock and roll. Bill O'Reilly will play the White Stripes for God's sakes. Then you turn over to NPR and their break music is a sad, lonely saxophone <laughs> echoing through a sewer pipe somewhere. When did that happen? All these guys, man, I swear to God, Rush Limbaugh plays Pretenders. Yeah. He's yeah. got a better, he's got the same iPod mix that I have. I don't <laughs> want to know that. Come on, Terry Gross, put some TV on the radio on there. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, let's kick some butt here. I think she actually does play TV on the radio. but So, look, we're at the end of our segment, and I'd like to give you the option of picking your own outro music. Is there some rocking song that you'd like us to play? Like okay. a really kick Yeah, as opposed to some Berkeley Trust Fund kids recordings of Screamers. <laughs> <laughs> um, hey, uh, take me out on a Paranoid. How about that? Perfect. Great riff. Do that. It's done. Dude, a great ending. Thanks, man. Oh my god, that was a, what a great outro. Our listenership just peaked. Hell yeah, because a lot of guys just put the uh, put the the paint rag down. They were sniffing and going. Maybe I'll stick around for a book chat. So Rico, I know that right now we're supposed to comment on the interview and tell yeah. people to contact us at our website, dinnerpartydownload.org. But this music sounds so good, I just want to keep listening to it. Agreed. Why sully these monster chords with a call out to our Facebook page, facebook.com slash dinnerpartydownload. Ladies and gentlemen, we've caught up with some authors and actors, learned some manners, but for a dynamite dinner party, we need music to play. In addition to Sabbath. So uh, for some less metallic suggestions, we turn to musician Catherine Calder. Hi, this is Catherine Calder. I sing and play keyboards in The New Pornographers, and I also have a solo project, and I just released a record called Bright and Vivid. This is my dinner party soundtrack. My first choice is a Brazilian song by Caetano Veloso. It's called Baby. Gal Costa sings it. You know, I, th I thought it was going to be this really romantic love song, but when I actually listened to the lyrics or translated them because they're in Portuguese, there's lots of talk about pools and margaritas. I, yeah, I had no idea. Precisa saber da piscina, da margarina, da carolina, da gasolina. You could listen to it probably by the pool. <laughs> they talk about pools in the song, so you might as well sit by one. Baby, baby. My second song is... I love ABBA. They're just filled with melody and memorable melodies, and I'm just such a sucker for that kind of thing. Really 
I was young, I was young, and uh, I was living in Holland at the time with my family, and I heard Super Trooper. I loved it so much, and I, I got the Greatest Hits tape, and I um, listened to it back to front forever. I think I still have the tape somewhere. I couldn't bear to give it up. Being Canadian and all, I thought I'd better pick a Canadian artist. And I'm torn because I could do old Canadian, like Joni Mitchell or Neil Young. You know, classic Canadian is maybe a more <laughs> appropriate. <laughs> um, or I could do... Oh, for There's a Vancouver musician called Dan Mangan. Let's do Oh, Fortune, the title track. Fields parent. Some bombastic drums and all over the record there's all these neat little sounds that come in and out. My husband is a producer in Vancouver and I was actually um, sorting receipts for taxes in the back on the couch listening to Dan mix this record. You would think that that would make me hate this song but it was nice to have a distraction, you know, and then occasionally they'd stop and make some changes, and that was great. Oh, choices. Are you looking for upbeat dinner party music? Might I suggest, off of my latest record, a song called Who Are You? You might even move the table aside and the chairs and maybe cut a rug. dinner party soundtrack from Catherine Calder. She plays keys in the new Pornographers, and she's on tour now in support of her solo album, Bright and Vivid. Two great adjectives. They're very friendly. <laughs> and like that them. was a great list. And I agree. Although I was a little sad not to hear the band The Guess Who mentioned when uh, she yes. was talking about classic Canadians. That's true. Rush is probably going to beat her up. <laughs> but what are you going to do? <laughs> Folks, thanks for attending the dinner party this week. Next week is our annual Best of show, where we play our favorite radio moments of the year, like the time Antonio Banderas told us a secret. I am a woman. Oh, Antonio. Folks, Jackson Musker is the assistant producer of The Dinner Party. Thanks to Robbie Carmen, Brendan Willard, Chris Clark, Peter Clowney, Ellen Gettler, Craig Curtis, Judy McAlpin, and all of our friends at Public Radio's business show, Marketplace. Yes. Also, thanks in advance to all of you for subscribing to our podcast. It's at dinnerpartydownload.org. Bon appétit. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano, and thanks so much for listening to another edition of Book Chat. Next week, DJ DeMaster discusses his riveting new work, The Diagenesis of Biogenic Silica, Chemical Transformations Occurring in the Water Column Seabed and Crust. Mm. Plus, are skinny bookmarks still cool? (laughs) 